Good morning, everyone. Happy Valentine's Day. Huh? Observe. It's a Valentine-y kind of color, right? I know it's supposed to be red, but... Well, um, it's Valentine's Day, and so uh, really thought we should talk about marriage a little bit, but we're in this series about the gospel, so we're going to talk about the gospel, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5, okay? So we're going we're gonna to hit a little bit of both. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read a little bit from there. We've been talking in uh, our study that we've been doing, the marriage study, on Thursday nights, and I know many of you are participating in that, and uh, we've been talking in there quite a bit. Of course, about marriage and about uh, roles and and uh, how to have a good marriage and how to build on your marriage and things to avoid and and uh, things like that. And so we've been spending some time in uh, Ephesians chapter five and and uh, so I want to rehit that this morning. I thought it would be a great place for us to start on Valentine's Day. It's a uh, you know the the season of of love and we're we're to love one another and we we love our our spouses and we we uh, give you know flowers to our uh, to our dear ones and and uh, cards and and whatnot and so I wanted to talk this morning. Start in Ephesians chapter five and and read a familiar passage. So if you would uh, look in chapter five, look at verse twenty-two, and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter there. So this is about husband and wife relationships. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so in this passage, of course, it's talking about husbands and wives and it's talking about the way we relate to each other. And there's a lot in there about uh, about what a wife needs and about what a wife expects and 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 what's really most important to her and and what's what's important to a husband and what he really needs, and what he expects and how that works out in marriage and all that stuff. And and that's really what Paul's talking about there. But he he says something very interesting when he says this mystery is profound. Verse thirty two. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. He's talking about that, that quote there from the Old Testament in verse 30. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And of course, in our marriage study and in various times, we've talked about what that means for a husband and a wife to become one flesh, what that looks like, etc. And that's an important piece that we're looking at. And that's what we're talking about in our marriage study. And it's usually what we come away with in this passage and yet Paul says something very interesting. He says, yeah, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. 
And so we, we very often, I've said this before, we very often think that um, as if Christ's relationship with the church is a picture for us of what marriage should be like. And so we kind of take our cues from that and we think about how Christ, you know, gave himself sacri- sacrificially for the church and how the church relates to Christ, etc., as instruction for how we should live our, our marriages out. And of course, that's true, but he's looking at it the opposite direction. And he's saying, you look around you and you see marriages all over the place. You see examples all over the place. And I'm telling you, those point to Christ in the church. He's the point. He's the point, and you guys are the examples, not the other way around. And so uh, that's powerful to me, and that's instructive to me, that, that God would care uh, so much about marriage. He would have so much invested in marriage. He's using us as pictures to people around us of what Christ's relationship with the church is like. And there's a lot of power in there, and that kind of that turns that on its head from what we're used to. And so if you think about your own marriage, and it's a picture before the world of who Jesus is, and how he relates to the church. That might be sobering to think about that, that your, your co-workers, your friends or your neighbors or your family, they're getting a picture of what Christ is like and how he relates to the church when they look at your marriage. That adds a little bit more weight. It's a little bit more sobering, right? Well, as I said, we've, we've been talking about the gospel and, and gospel essentials is this series that we're on. And we've looked at various aspects of that. And what I want to talk about today is this, this mystical union with Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at here. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, I'm saying this refers to Christ in the church. You see, the church is so intimately associated with Christ that, that the church can be called his body, his own body. And, or, or it's pictured here, the, Christ is, uh, the, the church is pictured as Christ's bride. And specifically, John later on is going to refer in Revelation, he's going to refer to the church as the bride of Christ. And so there's a, there's a real intimate kind of picture there. Well, which is it? Is, is the church his body? Or is the church his bride? Because that's kind of a different image. But I think what's trying to be communicated there in both of those is the intimacy, the closeness, the union of the church with Christ. And I think there's a lot in there. And so to that end, we're going to turn to John chapter 17. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning in John chapter 17. And then we're going to back off and look at John 15 a little bit. But Again, we're looking at this union with Christ, what it means for us to be united to him and what might uh, be the significance in our own lives and our own understanding of the gospel as we're looking at gospel essentials. So as you're turning to John chapter 17, we're going to begin there. We're going to be reading verses 20 through 23. And once you've found your way there, then we're going to go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning looking to your word for for guidance, for help, for instruction, for clarity really about what it means that we are the body of Christ or we are the bride of Christ. How how can that be and what can it mean for us? So Lord, we, we come to you and ask that you would speak to us, ask that you would open your word to us in a way that we can understand, that we can comprehend, that we can 
we can know what you would have us do, what you would have us know, what you would have us rely upon, and that we would walk in light of those things. I pray that your spirit would have his way in this room, that we would set aside distractions, that, uh, that we wouldn't be thinking about what's gone before or what's coming after or Facebook or politics or relationships or difficulties in our lives or any of those things, but that we would be able to focus in, zero in on what you have for us this morning. I ask that you would be lifted up. I pray, Lord, that that you would work in our hearts, that we would know you better as a result of this time. So we look to you and we trust you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at John chapter 17. And first of all, as I said, we're talking about the union with Christ and we're going to look at its nature. What is the nature of this union with Christ? Let me begin reading in chapter 17 and verse 20. Do not ask for these only. This is Jesus praying. This is what's called his high priestly prayer. And this is, this is him praying and he's, he's praying for us. And, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I've read that a lot, tried to understand that, and I kind of get lost in the I and, and you and the you and me and the we and them, them and us and all that, all that kind of stuff. And so it's, it's my desire this morning, it's our plan this morning to walk through that and see kind of what that union looks like and, and, and what all of that means for us. And so we're going to look, first of all, at the unity of the Father and the Son the unity of the Father and the Son. Look what he says there when he's praying in verse 21. He's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see, there's a, there's a unity of the Father and the Son. If we, if we think about the Trinity and we, we try to, to comprehend what the Bible says about the Godhead, about who God is and what he's like, Right. The Bible tells us that the father is God. The Bible tells us that the son is God. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there's only one God. Right. If we think about it further, we know from Scripture that the father is not the son. And the son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the father. They're separate persons. And yet they're one God. And so that's how we talk about our God who is three in one. We talk about the Trinity. So we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are each fully and completely God. And yet there's only one God, not three. And what this is pointing to is the the union, the unity that there is between the Father and the Son. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he's praying. He's talking about what that unity is like. See, it's, it's, not, it's not correct to say that Jesus is the Father. He's not the Father. He's one with the Father. He's unified with the Father, but He is not the Father. In a similar way, we might speak, it's, it's not a perfect analogy, but we, of, of course, I am not my wife. 
clearly. And yet we are one. We are one. Of course, this is just a picture of the larger truth of the reality that's in Scripture of the unity of the Godhead. And so Jesus praying here is talking about the unity of the Father and the Son. And so he says in verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's a there's a linking. There's something intimate. There's 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 a, a joining together. There's a union of the Father and the Son. When we think about the Trinity, we can kind of get an idea of that picture. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's an eternal union. It's an intimate union between the two. It has always existed within the Trinity. But he goes on and he talks about not only the unity of the Father and the Son, but he also talks about the unity of the church, the unity of the church. Again, he's praying there, verse 21, he says that they may all be one. He prays later that they may be perfectly one that they may be one. So there's a, there's a unity in the church. And so it's building logically from this kind of unity that there is between the Father and the Son. And he says that transfers, that's the kind of unity that he's praying for us to have as the church. And that doesn't just mean Parkside, of course. That means the church, the body of believers. All the believers in the world unified. Now there's a sense in which this hasn't taken place yet. It's yet to be accomplished ultimately, right? Or Jesus wouldn't be praying for it. He's praying for it to be accomplished, that there would be a, a fullness of that union of us as the church with one another. But there's, there's the fact of it as well. The fact that we are one. Not that we are separate and should become one. We are one in Christ. Now think about that for a little bit. There, there is a unity that exists within the body of Christ and it is real and it's tangible. A unity that, that exists. When Christians suffer, we feel it and we're, we're drawn to pray for them. Sometimes maybe we don't feel it as we ought to feel it. And we, of course, can grow in that. We can become more attuned to what's going on in the Christian world. But there, there's a unity when, when one of our members is suffering, we pray for that one and we want to help that one. There's, there's, there's something about how God has drawn us together and unified us. And it's not just uh, like we're some social club that we've all agreed to these tenets and we, you know, we pay our dues and we come together and we're a, we're a social club or something like that. that. That's not what it's like. It's on a much deeper level. It's on a heart level, our, our care for one another. It exists and it could grow. I, I'm aware of that in my own life. I'm aware of my, my concern for you and my concern for suffering Christians around the world and, and my concern for, for Christians that I hear about who are going through difficulties or whatever. So I'm, I'm aware of, of that feeling that I have for them, that unity that I have for them, that, that in, su- in some ways I enter into their suffering. And yet I'm also very aware of the fact that I, I kind of have a, sometimes a little bit of a hard heart. And you guys might be suffering, and I don't feel it as I ought to. And so I'm glad Jesus prayed for me, and he prayed for you here. But there is this unity within the church. That's kind of a new concept. We, we tend to think, I mean, we're Americans after all. We have a lot of choices, right? We could go to church here. We could go to church there. We could go to church nowhere. We could, you know, go to church on our iPhone, right? We could tune in somewhere and, and uh, you know, watch something and, and listen, 
we tend to think in those kind of terms. The church is where I decided to go. And he's thinking in entirely different terms. He's talking about us being unified. That there's a, a very real fact of us being one. And he's praying that we would continue in that. He prays in verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. Later on he's going to pray that they may be perfectly one. So there's a reality that's beyond us. I tend to think in terms of, of I am a member of whatever group I join. I volunteered, I signed up for this group, and so I joined that group. I joined a club, and so I'm a member of that. And Jesus says, no, there's something much larger going on here. In Christ, you have entered into union with the whole body of Christ. And that, that makes things a lot different. That makes my commitment to you a lot different. That makes my responsibility for you a lot different. That changes things. So he talks about the unity of the Father and the Son. He talks about the unity of the church. And here's where the logic gets very interesting. Thirdly, unity of the church with the Father and the Son. Unity of the church with the Father and the Son. Look at verse 21 again. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And look at verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, etc. I and them and you and me, right? I and them. There's a union, there's a joining together of the church with the Father and the Son. Now, of course, the analogy or the, the, the union breaks down in this sense. Of course, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are divine. They are God. And we do not enter into that divinity in any way, right? We are, we are separate in that sense. But we're going to get to a little bit more of what this means about Jesus taking on our flesh so that we get to be unified, joined with them. We have a union with their fellowship that they have had throughout eternity. This is where the Trinity takes on more meaning. There has always been relationship. There has always been relationship since God has existed, which is always the father loves the son always has the son submits to the father there, there's love and there's perfect relationship that has always existed within the godhead perfect relationship not the not the partial dim picture that you see in our relationships here but perfect selfless love for one another always and we because we are in christ we get to be brought into that we get to be unified with that. We get to enter into that kind of relationship with God who is our maker. And that's incredible, especially when you think about the fact that we've been separated from him because of sin. This is an incredible privilege for us, fallen humanity, broken, small, and petty, to be brought into this kind of relationship with God himself. What a privilege. So first of all, we've looked at its nature, the nature of this union. And here's really where we get into the payoff, its purpose for the world to know. We're going to stay in John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at uh, just some other parts of those verses there. So first of all, the purpose of this union, and stay with me, this is going to build and this is going to, this is going to pay off and make all kinds of sense. The purpose of this union is for the world to know. 
is so the world would know what? First of all, that the Father sent the Son. Verse 21 again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? For what purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Something about our union with one another and our union with him makes it clear in the world that God sent his son to redeem a people. He, he wants to make it known and he, he wants to use our union with him and our union with one another to make it clear that God is active in the world. See, we, we've, we're separated from God because of our sin, right? He's, he's infinite. He's holy. He's our creator and we are his creatures and yet we've, we've rebelled against him. And so there's a break between us. And he seeks out a people for his own possession that he would redeem some of those, that he would redeem his people and draw them to himself. And so when he redeems those people, they're, they're joined together with one another. They're joined with Christ and it becomes evident to the world God is at work redeeming for himself a people, a called out people, a people who are holy and separate. And he's doing that. And we can look and see God at work in the world and showing his kindness, showing his mercy to redeem people. God, God would have been just to leave us. He would have been just just to visit judgment on us. But he didn't. And we are evidence of that. And so God shows and he makes it known that he sent his son because he's redeemed us, because he has joined us with him. That's the first purpose for, for the world to know that the father sent the son. And secondly, for the world to know that the father loves the son. This is the purpose that the father loves the son. Look at 23. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. For what purpose? For what purpose? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Even as you loved me. God demonstrates his love for his son in providing a people like us, in protecting a people like us, in calling out for himself a people like us who are his own possession. To be followers of Christ. That's evidence of God's love for his son, that he joins us to him and, and we are allowed to be joined into that union with that relationship with that fellowship with the Trinity. And here's, this is what's amazing to me. So we have, first of all, the purpose is that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. Second of all, that the world would know that the Father loves the Son. And thirdly, that the, the world would know that the Father loves us as He loves the Son. Loves us as He loves the Son. Again, verse 23. That they may become perfectly one. For what purpose? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is where the payoff is for us. It, it makes sense for the father to love the son. Right? The son is love. He's lovable. He's lovely. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's been in perfect relationship with the father for eternity. Of course, it makes sense that the father would love the son. 
And think about how much love he has for the son. How much love can an an infinite being have for another infinite being? A lot. I'm guessing it's probably infinite, right? He, He loves the son that way. And Jesus says here, he loves us that way. So think about your week. Think about the last month. Think about the things that you've that you've done, that you've thought. Think about the ways that you've been petty. Maybe you've said cutting things or maybe you've withheld compliments or or healing words that you've withheld. Or think about the things that you've done, the way you've been, the way you've demonstrated just this last week or this last month that you are sinful. It's easy for me. I can tick them off pretty quickly in my head and I don't even have to go back a month, right? It's clear that we are not nearly lovely like Jesus is. Steph and I were talking about marriage and one of the amazing things about marriage and defining love as we were at the marriage uh, class this last Thursday, we were given the simple task of defining love, right? What is love? And different ideas about what it means and things like that. And um, so Steph was saying that uh, one of the fascinating things about about love in marriage is that when you get married, you're not really aware of the other person's faults. Like you might be able even to list some of them, but you don't really believe them, right? Because the person's perfect, right? You're infatuated with them, right? They're, they're great, you know? And so, you're, you're, you, and so you get married and yeah, you, you know, I'm sure there are imperfections and, and, but they don't really matter because you just love the person so much, right? And then later on when marriage happens and life happens, and sin happens, right? Now, a few years down the road, you're pretty painfully aware of the other person's flaws, right? You, 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 bear, the, you, know, you bear the marks <laughs> in your own body of their flaws, right? And so now we get into a definition of love that is powerful and meaningful. Before, it was sort of infatuation. It was blind, right? This person is just awesome, and I just feel awesome with this person, right? And so you don't, you don't really think about those imperfections that probably, you know, hy- hypothetically would exist, right? Because you just love this person. Well, now, you know, 20 years later for us, you know, we're aware of the flaws and the faults and the sins of one another. And we've gone through the pain that those things cause. And we love each other. That's amazing. And that's, inc- that's an incredible picture of love right there, that after years and years and years of, of a lot of water under the bridge, that you love each other and you still cling to each other in that way, that's now no longer blind. It was blind before, right? It was blind. It, was, it, it, it had no idea. Now it has an idea, and you still love the person. That is a picture of love. Well, that's a little bit of what we're talking about here. God, in his love for us, all, all the stuff that it took me years to learn about Steph, oh, really, she does have flaws? Amazing, right? And you, you guys don't have any idea that you think she's, she is. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> but, but for us to love one another after what we've gone through, after the, after the things that we've experienced, it took us years to learn those things about one another and to grow in that kind of love. And God knew that stuff from before the foundations of the world and he placed his love on you. That's the kind of love that he has for us. That's the kind of love. That's the love that he shows to us. That's amazing. 
And so when we talk about this union with Christ and what it means to be joined with him, it's a powerful thing that he actually loves us as he loves the son. That same amount of love that he has for the son, he has for us. We don't deserve that. And that's the gospel. As I was reading about union with Christ this week and studying about this, all of a sudden I started seeing it everywhere. And actually I intended this morning to look up how many times in Christ or in him occurred in the New Testament. I I didn't do it. It's a lot. Read through Ephesians 1 and it's a lot. In him, in him, in him, in Christ. It's everywhere. What does it mean to be in Christ? And I started seeing evidence of it all over. And, and it, and it I, sitting in the marriage study, I was like, I want to talk about this stuff in light of what it means to be in Christ, that we would be joined together in that kind of way that the Father would see us included in Christ. And this is where the gospel starts to make sense. We, we tend to think of, I tend to think of the gospel almost as a courtroom drama, right? I think of, of me being the guilty party, right? And I am, <laughs> The, the guilty party and God is the judge and he's the righteous judge and I have broken his law and therefore there needs to be a payment, right? And my breaking of his law is a, is a breaking of an infinite law and therefore my payment has to be infinite. I can't scrape up an infinite payment. I'm finite, right? And so that's, that's the picture. And so we see Jesus come in. Jesus who is, is God himself became a man, right? Became humanity just like me and died and paid the penalty, and now he offers to pay that for me so that the penalty, the infinite penalty that I owed, now Jesus has paid it when I put my faith in Christ, right? Well, that's true. That's the gospel, and that's the way we tend to think about it. But when you think about the gospel, when you think about salvation in Christ, it changes it a little bit. He actually became united with us. He joined in with us. Not only did his did he look like a man, but he was a man. He, he joined himself with us. And by the way, he did that forever, united with us forever, though he was holy. And he decided he, he was united with us even to the point of becoming sin for us, that our sin was placed on him. He united himself. He joined himself with us. And that way, when he pays the penalty, it makes sense because we are joined together. There's a union between the two of us. And now when he pays it, it makes sense. This also makes sense of of, uh, when we talk about salvation in Christ or believing in Christ, right? Very often in the New Testament, the word that is used is, is into, believing into Christ, meaning joining, being joined with him by faith being joined with him so that the penalty that he paid applies to me and I receive the benefits of being in Christ. That's powerful. And it also changes the idea of faith, right? I remember really going through a wrestling match with myself when I was a a newer Christian and I was growing in my faith and I was learning about stuff and I was thinking about, okay, I believe that, uh, that salvation is of grace, right? It's not of works. But you have to believe for it. So is belief a work? Right? And so I wrestled with that. Seriously, I wrestled with that for a couple of years. And I thought, is faith a work? Have I, have I worked something? Well, I just, not, not any other works. 
Salvation is not by works. You don't earn it. You don't climb the ladder. We're aware of that, right? But is faith one of the, you know, is it like kind of an express ladder? Like, what is that? Is it something different? So I wrestle with that. And this makes it make sense. This makes it make sense. Faith is not something that you generate. Faith is you being united with Christ. Salvation is in Christ. Salvation is not in faith. You see the distinction there? Salvation is in Christ. I think when we, when we start to talk about the faith that we need to be saved and the work that Jesus has done, we begin to separate Jesus' work from his person. And when you think about salvation in terms of John 17, you can't separate Jesus' work from his person. His work of saving us is applied to us when we are in Christ. When we are brought into Christ. So what does that, what does that look like for us? What does that, what does that mean? Well, let's, let's look at, uh, we looked first of all at the nature of the union with Christ and we looked at its purpose and now let's look at its fruit. So you're going to flip back just a couple of chapters to John chapter 15. We're going to look at its fruit. What's the, we've talked about the payoff as in salvation, of course, that Jesus would actually join himself with us so that he could pay the penalty and we could get the benefits of that, right? But now let's look at its, its application in our lives. What's, what's the practical outworking of this? Well, if you flip to John chapter 15, you're familiar with this. This is the, the vine and the branches, and there are primarily three players in this passage, right? You have the branches, and you have the vine, and then you have the vine dresser, okay? And I just want to focus on the relationship between the vine and the branches right here. The vine dresser is the father, okay? In this, in this story, this parable, if you will, the vine dresser is the father, and he's the one who comes and works the vine, and when he sees a branch that is bearing fruit, he prunes it and trims it so that it will bear even more fruit. And when he runs, runs across a branch that is bearing no fruit and therefore showing that it has no life, he cuts it off and throws it away, right? He's the one working the branch. That's the, that's the father. But what I want to focus on this morning is the relationship between the vine and the branches themselves. So we're going to read, uh, read verses 1 through 5 here. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, of course, first of all, the vine is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. This is imagery that goes back to the Old Testament. Very often in the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the vine. But how did Israel do as the vine? They weren't a real great representation of that. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true source of life. And, and that's kind of what he means there is that the, the vine is the source of life for the branches, the source of the nutrients and the water, the sap, right? The, the source of strength. All of the source, of the source of the fruit, it all gets to the branches through the vine, right? And so that's Jesus. Jesus is the vine. 
And of course, next we have the branch who is the Christian, right? The believer, the one who is in him, the one who is in Christ. And so you have this branch hanging out there and, and, and you've heard this preached before and you've seen the illustrations, you know, of that a branch doesn't, you know, work and flex and everything to create fruit, right? The, the nutrients coming from the vine into the branch produce fruit. And so the branch is not the source of the nutrients. The branch is not the source of life, not the source of the fruit. It just bears the fruit, but it's the vine working through the branch that bears the fruit, right? And so that's the relationship between the vine, Jesus, and the branch, Christian. And here is where I want to focus for a second. What is Jesus' application when he tells that picture? What does he say? What does Jesus say about that? Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So this is our point of application for this morning. What does it mean to abide in Christ? I've talked about you know, some theology. I've talked about what it means to be united with Christ and to be in union with him, to be joined with him. Jesus has used this example here of the vine and the branches. And then he says... In light of that, so abide. Abide in the vine. How, how do you abide? Well, abide has another, uh, some, some, some translations say remain. Remain, right? Abide or remain. It's the same word. How do you abide in Christ? How does the branch abide in the vine? That's another one I've wrestled with for years and years. It's such a simple command. Abide in me. Sweet. I'm going to abide in Jesus. Okay, what does that look like? Well, if, if we go back to the, the illustration that we started with, we started with Ephesians chapter 5 and looking at marriage. How do you abide in your marriage? If you, if, if you don't abide in your marriage, are you still married? Yeah. Until the marriage is dissolved, until divorce happens or death or something like that. But yes, you're still married. But how can you really thrive in your marriage? That's the theme in our marriage conference. But how can you really grow in your marriage? So let's use two examples, right? The example of a guy goes to work and uh, doesn't even think about his wife. Forgets that he's married, like doesn't wear a wedding ring, right? Just forgets all about it and goes about his day without a, without a thought for his wife without a thought for his family, right? Just goes through the day doing his thing. And he may not be, you know, an adulterer. He may not be a bad guy or whatever, but if he just goes through his day without any thought for his wife, right? Is he abiding in his marriage? Well, no, he's not abiding in his marriage. Is he, is he less married than he was? Is, is he unmarried now? Well, he's not unmarried, but he's kind of acting like it, right? But he's going through his day without reference to his wife. And think of the fruit that would be produced from that. If you did that day after day after year after year, what would your marriage look like? Think of how shriveled it would be. Think of how sad your wife would be. Think of how sad you would be. Think of the predicaments you would find yourself in. Because he, he may be a pretty good guy, but sooner or later living like that, there's going to come a situation that's going to tempt him away from his wife. And probably sooner rather than later and probably worse rather than better. All right. So he's lived his life this way without reference to his wife. Is he still married? But is it a great marriage? No, far, far from it. Right. So 
Now go to the other side, right? Flip side of that same coin. You got a man who goes to work, loves his wife. He's thinking about his wife. Maybe he's praying for his wife. Maybe texts his wife, right? He's thinking about her. And when, when a situation comes up, right? Maybe it's a, maybe there's a coworker who's, who's an attractive woman or something like that. And well, he's thinking I, I'm married and he's got his wedding ring on and you know, it, he's, he's living with reference to his wife, even when he's away from her, even when he's at work, even when he's, you know, traveling or whatever he's doing, he's living with reference to his wife. He's thinking about her. He's caring for her. You know, we, we, uh, we talked about the, uh, Johnny Cash song, the walk the line. That's what he's doing. Right? He's, he's, keeping a, he's keeping a close watch on his heart. He's, because he's thinking about and living with reference to his wife. And so think about day after day of doing that, year after year of doing that. What's his marriage like? Well, it's going to be a whole lot stronger than that guy's marriage. Right? His, his wife knows that, that he loves her. His wife knows that he's faithful, that he's committed. Right? They talk various times throughout the day. There's... there's they're close. They're growing closer as they're growing older. As they're married longer and longer, they're, they're growing closer. He is abiding in that relationship. Are they more married than them? Not really, right? But can you see the evidence? Oh, man. Happy wife, happy husband, happy home, productive, fruitful, right? You see the difference. It's very clear. So bring it back to this picture of what it means to abide in Christ. Abide in Christ, right? If I live my life, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I trusted Christ when I was 18 and I went to Bible school and uh, now I, yeah, I, go, I go to work and I'm a good guy. Um, I don't, I don't really pray that much and I don't, you know, I wouldn't, it's kind of uncomfortable to share my faith with my coworkers and don't really, you know, I'm not really into that. I'm not like that. And um, now I'll, I'll go to church on Sunday, you know, except, you know, when it's golf season, because I really, really like to golf and Sunday morning is the best time. And so, like, you see what I mean? So is this guy less of a Christian? No, I, assuming he truly trusted Christ and, and, and really is in Christ, no, he's a Christian. What's the fruit look like, right? Versus a guy who gets up, prays, reads his Bible, trusts in the Lord, thinking throughout the day, right? Praying throughout the day, living, living his life in light of the existence of, of God himself and his relationship with his creator and his savior. Is this guy more of a Christian? He's a Christian, but is he abiding in Christ? Is he going to be growing? Are you going to be seeing fruit in your lives in, in his life? Yeah, you're going to see greater fruit in his life. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, verse four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit. By itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so that's the challenge for me this morning. I, I really have wrestled for years and years with this, with this, uh, what it means to abide in Christ. And I thought it was going to be solved when I started studying Greek and uh, in college. And, and, I, and one of the first words you learn, probably the first word you learn in Greek, is minnow. Right. And it, it means to abide. And it also has another meaning. And you're thinking, sweet, now I'm going to understand. Well, the other other word is remain. <laughs> Come on, man. I thought Greek was going to save the day. No, it doesn't save the day. But this picture of what it means to live as a married couple in light of your relationship, in light of your marriage, in light of your relationship with your spouse, 
transfers and helps me to understand what it means to live, to abide, to remain in Christ. That I think about him, that I'm aware I'm powerless on my own. That, that, that I'm aware that I am, I am someone who has been saved by God's great mercy and included in Christ. And that changes the way I relate to other people. That changes the way I deal with someone who offends me. Right? How many, how many people have I offended? How many times have I offended God? And I've received forgiveness. And so it changes the way I relate to that person. It changes the way I think about people around me who are unbelievers. And I was just like you. And it wasn't that I was smarter than you or I figured it out earlier or anything like that. God, save me. And here's how you can be saved too. It changes the way I go about, you know, doing, uh, living my life, doing the things that I ought to instead of the things I ought not to do or attempting things for God, deciding to do things for God, knowing that I am powerless, I'm weak, and I may be, I, I'm not, <laughs> but you might be a super sharp person. And you might be dedicated and disciplined and have it all together and you can accomplish stuff. And when you're abiding in Christ, you will realize I am limited nonetheless. And when I attempt to do something for God, if I'm doing it on my own, I labor in vain. So that's what I want to leave us this, with this morning is, is what it means to abide in Christ. It's Valentine's Day and, and uh, we, we love our spouses and I'll apologize to my wife later and, and uh, we'll be good. <laughs> but that, that picture of what it means to, to live in light of your relationship with your spouse should help you. And I hope it will help you this week as you think about what it means to abide in Christ. You don't go to work and leave Jesus at home. You don't, you don't leave church and leave Jesus at church. He goes with you. He's there with you. Talk to him. Live every moment in light of your relationship with him, in light of the reality that by his grace you have been included in Christ. So that, that's my challenge to you, and that's my challenge to me this week, is to, uh, to take that picture of my marriage and apply it where it really, really counts in my relationship with God himself. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this truth that you have included us in Christ. I have never deserved such a thing. And yet you show mercy to me. Lord, I pray for each one here that they would be shown the same mercy. I pray that there would be none here this morning who leave without knowing you, without being in Christ. I pray that you would work in their hearts and that you would call them to yourself. Lord, thank you for this great relationship and all the benefits. And there's so much more to talk about what it means to be in Christ. We've just scratched the, the surface. But all the gifts and all the blessings that are ours in Christ, the fact that you have seated us in the heavenlies in Christ, what an amazing thing. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, thank you for your word that tells us of this, these things, that we don't have to feel around in the dark and try and figure stuff out. But you tell us straight out what you'd have us know. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. I pray that you would be glorified in us this week. I pray that we would abide in you this week, that you would show yourself strong, that you would work in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you, and uh, you are dismissed. Happy Valentine's Day.